listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. As we jump into this morning's passage, I want us to see first that there are four primary ways for us to read and to interpret uh, the book of Revelation. And these are four uh, dominant ways. There are, under these are several ways, um, several different interpretive styles. But I want us to go through these because this is the point in the book where usually folks have to kind of take a way to read and interpret. So the first way that some would read and interpret the book of Revelation is what's called a preterist view. Everybody say preterist. So preterist, uh, they would believe that everything is fulfilled in the first century during Rome's conquest of Jerusalem. So in 70 AD, when Rome came in and destroyed the temple there in Jerusalem, that's where all of this, and we talked about this earlier, maybe the first or second week, I think the second week when John was writing, if there was an early date for the writing of Revelation, this is what preterism would say, the early date, Rome, uh, Revelation was looking forward to the destruction of Jerusalem. So here's a timeline, and as you as you see this, this is going to be slightly overwhelming, I, I imagine, for, for many. Um, here's the timeline for uh, what a preterist, how they would interpret. Just so you know, if you want to take a picture of this, you can. Hopefully today or tomorrow, I'm going to create a website, uh, southpoint.org slash revelation. I'm going to put all of these images there if you want these, okay? There's going to be six of these, several other things that I'm going to put up on the screen. All of this is going to be there along with all of my notes, quotes, anything else that you may need. Um, and so, but, so if you want to take a picture, you can. Partial preterism would say, and there are two, two ways of looking at this. Partial preterist, you can see the, the labels there, that Christ came in 70 AD for the first time. And as you see there on the screen, perusia, which means the coming of Christ. He came once and inaugurated his coming, yet he's still coming again. That's a partial preterist. So Jesus has returned in a sense, but will return again in the future. There's full preterism, which says that Jesus has already returned and he is setting up his kingdom on earth. And you see there the arrow at the top. This is the heavenly world to come. So Christ is already here fully. The third way under preterist that you could interpret the book of Revelation is with postmillennialism. And this says that all or most people in the world will become Christians. So they seek to reform politics and culture under the demands of Christ. Now, let me just say this before uh, we keep going. So those are the first kind of, that's the first way to interpret with a, with a preterist understanding. And preterist literally means that which is past. So if we look at the past, these things have been fulfilled or completed. All of these ways that we're going to look at this morning, there are going to be people in heaven who believe each and every one of these. Everybody good with that? These are not primary issues. So if you say, well, I'm a partial preterist and my wife is an omelet, that's fine. Go to lunch, have a good lunch, don't talk about this, okay? Uh, this is just for, for nursing, but it's important for us to understand how we read really from beginning of chapter four through the rest of the book. So post-millennials, uh, the... I don't, I don't want to say the word they, uh, I don't want to say that, but post-millennials would say this. Uh, it teaches that Christ ascended into heaven, and we have here during this era of proclamation, we see there the binding of Satan, which happened or is going to happen at some point. Things are going to ramp up, and then again, we have the great tribulation or this last battle there at the end, and then being fulfilled with the world to come. The second way, besides preterist, way of reading the book of Revelation is from a historist, a historicist perspective. Historicists would say that Revelation is a record of history from Jesus' birth to the end of the world. So there is a progressive sense of fulfillment. And this is where we see different layers of revelation throughout. And so each one of those layers is giving a little more, it's repeating what's happening what is happening currently in the world, but also adding some to the end of that. So th this is where they would read the book of Revelation as primarily symbolic. So here's a timeline of amillennialism, and this is the primary one. Now, to be fair, you could be an amillennialist and hold to a, an idealist perspective. You could be a postmillennialist and hold to a historical perspective. Like, there are ways, so in every single one of these, there are also different categories, okay? This is not a, a complete consensus of every single view of how to interpret Revelation. Just know that. 
Amillennialism would say that Christ ascended into heaven and we are currently in the age of the great tribulation. Christ is going to come down eventually after things get a little bit worse. He is going to reappear at that parousia where we have the resurrection and the judgment and then the world to come. So here we are currently in this world dealing with the tribulation and then Christ is going to return again. The thousand years, they would say the thousand years in the Revelation chapter 20 is synonymous with the church age. And we are in the tribulation now, today, so persevere. The third way of reading the book of Revelation is from a futurist perspective. A futurist would say that everything will be fulfilled in the future. The tribulation is to come. Revelation is predictive of time right before the parousia. So we're living, waiting on, looking for the signs now of when Christ is about to return or when the tribulation is about to start. Some perspectives in this would be the historical premillennialism. Historical premill would be a linear, literal reading of Revelation. So as we read Revelation, we're looking for what do these signs mean? Who are these people? Who is the Antichrist? Who are the countries that John is writing about here? And so even when you get into historical premillennialism, and this is uh, primarily a lot of the way that I studied uh, through college uh, where I went. But they would say that there's the ascension. Now we're in this era of proclamation. So we are proclaiming to the world, come to Christ. Christ is going to come, the Perugia right there. And that's where the millennial reign is going to happen. At the end of that millennial reign, we see the great tribulation in this last battle in Megiddo, Armageddon. And then Christ is going to come again with judgment on the world and then the world to come, stage three of the kingdom. That's historical premillennialism. Now within that, you have a, uh, a pre-trib rapture, a post-trib rapture, uh, either a secret rapture or a public rapture. So again, we have all of these different branches in there. The other uh, main vein of a futurist is a dispensational premillennialism. So this is, maybe you know this better as dispensationalism. There are different dispensations or time periods or ways that God functions and ways that he communicates to his people. That's a dispensation, a time period. So there are different dispensations, different covenants that he's agreed to. Uh, if you're familiar with Left Behind, this would be a left behind timeline. This is what they would believe. The emphasis here is on Israel. So we see the ascension. We see this time of the church age. We see the rapture. You see that R right there with the P1 beside it. This is the phase one of the Perusia. Then we have uh, the tribulation. Christ comes again. Things get worse. Uh, then he, he uh, let's see. Then we have the coming again, phase two of the Perusia. At that point, we have the millennium set up. Then Christ comes and judges the world, phase three of the parousia, and then the world to come. So a few more things in there. So that is a futurist perspective. Then lastly, there's an idealist way of reading the book of Revelation. Again, each one of these six timelines I've just given you, they can all somewhat, almost all of them can fit into a different reading or interpretation, whether it's historicist, idealist. There's nothing that fits really cleanly into an idealist, but an idealist would say that Revelation is not an individual, not about individual fulfillments, but it depicts transcendent spiritual realities. So most of Revelation is just saying, hey, here's what sometimes happens. Here's what's happening, and we can't put really specific timelines with it. Here's my challenge for us this morning. If you were to take, in all of these, whether it's post-mill, ah-mill, pre-mill, dispensational pre-mill, whatever these are, and some of you are just like, I don't, I don't care. That's fine. I just want to read Revelation. That's great. If you are enamored with and say, man, I've got to make Revelation fit into my pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill exegesis of this passage. If I have to make something fit, I would encourage you, as you read through Revelation, what would your perspective or what would your view of Revelation be without the millennium? And here's why I think that's important. I think the millennium is real. In Revelation 20, he talks about this thousand-year reign. But guess what happens before Revelation 20? 19 other chapters. So as we read the book of Revelation, a lot of times we've hunkered down on, okay, when's the millennium going to happen? And I've got to make everything work around that. My perspective, I'm not going to tell you what it is. My perspective, it includes the millennial reign of Christ because guess what? It's in the book of Revelation. But without saying, okay, well, the millennium has to be here and hard and fast, then let's work away from there. I would say, let's work through the book of Revelation together. Here's what John Frame 
an, an old Presbyterian uh, pastor and theologian, John Frame said this, so far as I can see, every Bible passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose. It's not so that we can debate this. It's not so that you can have roast pastor for lunch and talk about how dumb I am, okay? It's for a practical purpose, not to help us develop a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience. John says, those who read and hear and live according to the words that you hear in this book will be blessed. So if we miss that and we have our eschatology perfected, we have missed the point of the book of Revelation. I want to put those out there for you. I'll, I'll put those on a website, southpoint.org slash revelation. I may even make one called uh, southpoint.org slash revelations and uh, might put some Easter eggs in there for you just for kicks. Uh, but we'll do revelation for the real one because that's what the book is called. As we jump into chapter six here, and hopefully you're there with me, I would ask you to repeat these words from Psalm 119. And if you're new, we do this every week. But make, let's, let's make this our prayer together. Repeat these words after me. Open my eyes that I might receive your wonderful word to me. Amen. That's our prayer this morning. As we look at um, the words of John here about the revelation of Jesus Christ, may our hearts be comforted. May they be encouraged. May they be convicted of sin. So let's jump into chapter six. Chapter six and verse number one. We see here, John says this. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. Now last week we talked about the scroll that had seven seals on it. And these seven seals, we had the scroll as they would take one seal off, they would take the seal off and they would open some more of the scroll. Then there would be another seal. That would be seal number two. They would unroll the scroll some more. There would be seal number three. As we look here this morning, we're not going to read this chronologically because that's not the way seals on a scroll work. The way the seals on a scroll are going to work, we're going to see here as he opens the seals, the unraveling of the scroll of all of human history. And if you missed last week or any of these weeks, they're going to build on each other. I don't have time to go back and digest and relook and recapitulate everything that we've looked at for the past four weeks. But I would encourage you to go listen to those, go watch them. But as he opens the scroll, there's one seal. And then next we're going to see next week and in the weeks to follow, here's what that part of the scroll looked like. So today he's saying, just when I open these seals, here's what happened. So first he says, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud thunder, come. Who is he talking to here? One of the four living creatures, the four living creatures, they looked like, remember where they were? They looked like what? Call them out. An ox, a lion, an eagle, and face like a man. So one of those called out and he said, come. Now who or what are they calling to? Who are they calling to come? They're not calling John. He's not saying, hey, come here and look. John's already there. And I don't think here one of these is saying, uh, he's not calling the four horsemen that we're going to look at in a second. He's not saying, hey, horses, come destroy creation. This is not creation saying, hey, come destroy us. That wouldn't make sense. So here, one of these four living creatures is talking to the lamb who is in the midst of the throne with the glory of God Almighty saying, come, come, bring your kingdom to bear. Bring your kingdom. That's what the scroll is about. Human history and the plan of God from the beginning of human history until the end. And now Jesus Christ, the lamb on the throne, is opening the scroll, the only one who is worthy. And one of the four creatures says, come, Jesus, bring us this revelation. Come and bring your kingdom. Come and establish your kingdom on the earth for all of the world to see. Reminds me of the Lord's Prayer, right? May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's the prayer here. The four horsemen that LB just read about, they represent what happens when Jesus and his kingdom begin to press in on the world. The four horsemen that we're going to see, they represent what happens when Christ and his kingdom begin to press in on the world. So as Christ's kingdom comes to earth, there's a resistance and opposition that we feel because of our sinful nature. We don't want the kingdom of God. And so we're left with misery and terror. We don't want the kingdom of God. No, 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 we don't want that. And so there's this crunch 
But listen, the chaos and the violence that we're about to see are not signs. They are not signs that the lamb is not on his throne. The chaos and the violence that we see is the lamb's justice. Because the lamb says, if you want to know how to live rightly, if you want to know my love, then come to my kingdom. And my kingdom is one of sacrifice. My kingdom is one of peace. My kingdom is my way of laying down your life. But if you don't want my way, then I'll give you your way. I'll let you have your way. So the four horsemen that we see are true across human experience always. When we see the four horsemen here, we see as the seal is opened, there they are right there. The four horsemen, maybe you know, anybody? Yeah. So here's the four horsemen with their manager, J.J. Dillon. So if you're a wrestling fan, you're like, I know the four horsemen. Nicole told me beforehand, she said, I, I met Ric Flair. Woo! And then she started screaming, and she was like, ah! And I was like, I'm, I'm just kidding, she didn't do that. But you remember, you remember the four, the original four horsemen. That's not them, by the way. We're looking here in the scripture. The four horsemen that we see here in the scripture, this is what's true of human history always. Because as that first seal is open, Jesus says, here's what happens when I, I let humanity live the way that it wants to live. So verse number two, look here with me. Verse number two, I looked and I looked and behold a white horse. So the first horse that we see here is what color? White, that's important. I looked and I saw a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. So we have to understand who these horses are. Some would say this first horse is Jesus because he's riding on a white horse and he has a crown and he has a bow. But I'll be honest, I don't think that really matches up with the other four horses. So this first horse, and again, by the way, I've said this every week, I could be wrong. Everybody say, you could be wrong. One, two, three. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really mean that. I could be wrong, and it's going to be okay. But this first horse, I believe, is the power of evil imitating Jesus Christ because Jesus does come riding in on a white horse in chapter 19. But here we see this white horse as the spirit of Antichrist. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Remember, we looked at Daniel last year or a year and a half ago. I don't know. We, we, we started looking at it a year and a half ago. We went through all 12 chapters of Daniel. We talked about the spirit of Babylon being the spirit of Antichrist. And the spirit of Antichrist says that there are many ways to salvation. You can have Jesus minus the cross. Or you have Jesus with the cross plus you have to do good works. Here's what John said in 1 John chapter 4. He says this in verses 2 and 3. By this you know the spirit of God. This is the same author, by the way. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the, let's say it together, Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Second John, verse number seven, there's only one chapter. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and antichrist. The spirit of antichrist is a fake. It says, oh, here's a, here's a good religion. Here's a great denomination. Here's a way of looking at the scriptures. You don't have to exactly adhere to what Jesus Christ says. You can have it your way. But notice what it says here in verse number two. And the crown was given to him. It was given to him, and he came out conquering, not for the sake of those that he was conquering, not for this, but for the sake of conquering. Is that why Jesus Christ conquers? Is for the sake of conquering? Absolutely not. As we look at this, this was given to him. In other words, evil is not in charge. It is not on the throne. Evil is on a leash, but there's some sort of mystery that we have to wrestle with here because even this first horse, and for each one of these, we're going to see this word given. The power was given to them. The mystery is this, that these four horsemen, they serve God's plan for heaven coming to earth. Could there have been another way? Maybe. But we know this. God said, hey, I'm going to give you this power and you can go ride. 
The first horse is a white horse. Secondly, we see in verse number three, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse. Again, I don't think he's speaking here to the four horsemen. I think he's, he's talking to Christ saying, hey, we want the kingdom of God to come. Part of the kingdom of God coming, part of the scroll being unraveled and read is the four horsemen coming in. Another horse, bright red. I can't do this for all the colors. But another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another and he was given a great sword. This second rider here represents blood and war. And if we look at our lives, if we look back at human history, this is why we can say this is true of human history at all times. Are we not bent toward war? Are we not bent toward, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm about peace. I'm a hippie. Do you have kids? Anybody ever had kids or you seen a kid? Like in public or like out here like 10 minutes ago? You've seen... So you know that we're bent toward war. War against sleep, war against obedience, war, uh, pretty much anything. We're bent toward war. There's something in us. Do you ever snap at someone that you say you love dearly? Do you ever just snap and you're like, I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. That just happened. We're bent toward war. But I also say this, the anger that you experience and the anger that this second horseman represents I think that almost all of our anger is a cover-up for something inside of us that we don't want to be revealed. Anger is protecting yourself from feeling hurt or feeling grief or feeling sorrow or shame or guilt. So when you're angry, you're probably not really angry for the sake of being angry. You're angry because there's a part of you that's being touched that you don't want to deal with that. And it's way easier to be angry. That's why kids can't speak in terms of grief, but they can speak in terms of anger. Like, I'm just an angry person. All right, then we're going to treat, treat you with kids' gloves. Okay, well, I just can't help my road rage. Okay, little fella. I'm so sorry that you haven't grown up past that two- and three-year-old impulse. So here we see the second rider, the red one. He brings anger. Next. We see in verse number five, and he opened the third seal, and I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, a black horse, and his rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Now, the quart of wheat for denarius, and the three quarts of barley for denarius, a quart of wheat is what you would normally need. That's enough food for one day. Now, barley wasn't as good as wheat, so it took about three quarts of barley to equal about one quart of wheat in terms of nutritional value. This third horse, the scales, here's what John is saying. The food will be weighed and rationed. So if all you have is enough money for food for that day, that means you have, you have no money for anything else. He's saying, so we're gonna be on a, somewhat of a, a hunger strike. This is famine. But notice, the price of wine will not be affected. Do not harm the oil and the wine. So in other words, the rich will get what they want, but the price of, because the price of wine will not be affected. So he's saying here, those of us who are, who are poor, who can't afford, who are just working to make it, we're going to be really hurt by this. But those who are rich, they're still going to have oil and wine. This third horseman, he takes what we need to survive and leaves us with what we don't. He takes what we need to survive, but he leaves us with what we don't need to survive. In other words, if we put this in spiritual terms, not just physical terms, which this is a spiritual book written to spiritual people about spiritual things, he's saying there is a famine, not of our bodies. This third horseman represents a famine of the soul. And is, not, is that not where our culture, our society is today? A famine of the soul? Elijah Del Megiddo, he said this just a couple of years ago. He said, the brutal, painful fact is this. The average person living in a Western country increasingly has nothing to live for. He has a little family, few friends, no neighborhood, no community, and no God. He exists mostly as a ritual of economic activity, a number on a balance sheet. By the way, this guy's not a theologian. 
I don't even think he's a Christian. The reasonable thing for him to do would be to simply curl up and die. As the individual goes, so goes the civilization. For in society views us as nothing more than a cog in a machine. And we could go back and we can blame it on the internet. We can blame it on AI or robots or um, somebody else, some other country. We can blame it on our parents or, or the hippies or the greatest generation or the industrial revolution or feminism. We can blame it on whatever we want to blame it on. But essentially what we have to get down to is that we are seen as this is what we do, not who we are. And as cogs in the machine, it's no wonder that we're prone to fear, to anxiety, to depression, toward being tired. And it's because, as he says, we are dead on the inside. And it's reflective here of this third horseman. This one where there is famine of the soul. Next, we see verse number seven. Number seven, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked and behold a pale horse. The word here in the, in the Greek, it literally means this yellowish green color, the color of puke, the color of vomit. Anybody's favorite color of that? You're like, man, look at that beautiful vomit colored shirt. Please buy me that for Christmas. No, he's saying this, this pale horse, it, it really means it's, it's gross. And notice the awful image here. And its rider's name was death. And Hades followed him. In other words, the place of the dead. So here we have death riding through the earth and the grave is following, gathering up corpses. And they were given, again, that word given, authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. We have death that is hitting the earth. It's given over to them. Here's what I want us to see, and this will be up on the screen if you want to write this down or take a picture of this. In verses 1 through 8, here's the progression so far. The lamb is on his throne. Creation cries out for new creation. And we saw it last week. The mountains are shouting. The rocks and the trees are clapping their hands. All of creation is groaning. This is not the way it should be. It can't wait for a new creation. The forces of evil hate this idea. The spirit of the Antichrist of Babylon hates this idea. So they rise up in opposition. And when these two worlds collide, that's where we have something has got to give. Either the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the world, something has got to give. The question is, is the church spared through all of this? I wish. I wish the church was spared through all of this. Hear this, when the church goes the way of the lamb, it gets caught in a crunch. When the church goes the way of the lamb, it gets caught in a crunch. Between do I live according to the kingdom and the king of this world that I see right here around me? That says live for yourself? That says be a cog in the machine? That says make a lot of money? That says do what you love? That says look at God's word and say thanks, but here's how I want to open the scroll. Here's what I wish it said about my future, about my life, about my purpose. Or do we live according to the king of the kingdom who is above all over the kings? Do we live according to the kingdom where there is a slain lamb in the midst of the throne saying here is where you will find ultimate peace and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment? Which one of those two kingdoms are we going to give our allegiance to? So then we get to verse number nine. Verse number nine says this, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. Now, when an animal was sacrificed on an altar of burnt offerings, we see this. Again, I said there are uh, 513 references to the Old Testament in these 404 verses in the book of Revelation. He is here talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system. So when an animal was sacrificed on the altar, the blood would be caught in a basin under the altar. So this is what he's referencing. This is what John is referencing here. He's saying, I looked under the altar, and that's where the souls of those who have been slain. In other words, these are the martyrs who have been put to death for what they believe in. Notice what they said. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long must we wait here? So the question is, how long until we are, it's seen that we are right, that we were right, that we receive our reward? 
And notice what the Lord says. Then each of them were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So the question is, how long? How long until your kingdom is going to come to earth? And God says, a little longer. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers, literally there in the Greek, it means brothers and sisters. Okay, ladies? Should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Those under the altar, those martyrs who have gone before us, the blood of the martyrs, which is the seed of the church, as Tertullian said, they're saying, how long until our deaths were vanquished? And God says, a little bit longer, just a little bit longer. That's why revelation is so pertinent to us because revelation is not about how to avoid persecution. Revelation is an encouragement to endure faithfully. Paul said this in chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. He said, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying, hold fast to that. We don't just come to the throne and worship and say, there's the lamb. He's way up there. He's separate from us. He says, no, I've invited you in. You're one with me. And nothing can separate that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, hold on to that. Hold on just a little bit longer. Cling to the Bible's promises like you might be martyred for it. Cling to the Bible's promises like you might be put to death for it. Preach to your coworker and to your neighbor like you might be put to death for it. Love your spouse like you might be put to death for it. Hold your kids and show them who Jesus is like you might be put to death for it. He says, persevere. Not because our lives are at risk. You know, nobody's gonna, we don't have the threat of anybody coming here and, and taking us out because we worship Jesus. He says, but lay down your life for the sake of your kids, for those you love. And because one day we might have, let's be ready now in case there is a time, and it will come eventually, when we have to lay down our lives for Jesus Christ. Then we see verse number 12. Verse number 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. This is a a tree in the midst of a great storm. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This The sixth seal is the final judgment day. Not only is there an earthquake, but we see here with the stars, there is a heaven quake. There's an earthquake and a heaven quake. Now notice the end, like most movies portray, the end does not come because some meteor hits the earth and things start going awry. The end does not come because something external impacts our world. The end comes because the lamb says, hey, here's my way. And God says, okay, you want to reject the way of the lamb? You want to be your own God? You go ahead. Go ahead. Be your own God. See if you can hold all of this together. See if you can hold the stars in the sky. If you can, like I do as God, if you can hold the ocean back from the sand. See if you can hold all of this together. So as Christ is about to come back again in the second return, we see here all of creation is groaning to the fact that, man, things are starting, th- terrible things are happening. The earth is falling apart because God has given us over to ourselves and he's stepping back and he's saying, fine, you hold it all together. That's what we see in, in verses 12 through 14. And there's in the verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they called out to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. And the lamb is standing there saying, I've been slain for you. And they would rather die. They would rather be crushed by the lamb than surrender to the lamb who died in their place. Such arrogance and pride. Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come. 
Whose wrath was it? Notice, this isn't God's wrath coming yet. We're going to see that later. And it's going to be worse than this. It's their wrath. They're the ones who have rejected God. For the great day of their wrath has come. And the question is, who can stand? Friend, listen, when the good news of Christ's reign collides with greed, pride, racism, nationalism, the church absorbs suffering and the kingdom comes. Notice that. One kingdom, Christ's reign, when it collides with our world, which values greed and pride, all sorts of pride. We've got a whole month for it. Greed, aren't we dealing with that with taxes? Have you done your taxes yet? I'm trying to get back as much as I can, and I'm all for that. I hate death, and I hate taxes. But when we're stealing, when we're greedy with what we have, pride, racism, nationalism, the church absorbs the suffering. The church is put out. Like, oh, man, I can't believe that you would say this about the church. I follow Christ. I can't believe you would be mean to us. Now, if we're known as being right because we want to be known as being right and we're just a bunch of jerks, then we deserve whatever we get. But if we identify with Christ and say, here's what his word says, here's where true hope, joy, love, peace is found, and the world says, no, we reject that, we absorb that suffering. And it's a reflection of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God comes to the earth when we live lives like the lamb. The lamb's kingdom is a kingdom of loving sacrifice, not one of greed, of pride, of racism, nationalism. And that list could go on, by the way. Who can stand? He asked that question here at the very end. John says, who can stand? Can kings stand? No. Can those of great influence stand? No. Can celebrities stand? Can, can those who have all of their theology just right stand? Nope. Can the rich stand? Nope. Can the military stand? Here's who can stand. Let's look at chapter 7 and verses 1 through 3. He says this, after this, I saw four angels. Real quick, notice he doesn't say after this happened, then this happens. I'm just going to let that sit right there for a second. I'm going to let some of you all kind of fidget in your seats. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with a seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, so he's saying to these, to these four horsemen, He's saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until when? Until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So the four horsemen, they're, they're being unleashed. They have been unleashed. The scroll has begun to be unraveled. As it is, we see these four horsemen coming through human history. Yet when we get to verse, sorry, chapter seven in these verses, he's saying, before that happens, I want to go forward and seal my people. So the beginning of chapter seven happens before anything in chapter six. Now for us Westerners, we're like, yeah, 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 yeah but uh, six comes before seven. I know, man. There's no other way for us to be sealed in Christ before those things happen unless it's before those things happen. Everybody tracking? So he's, he's stepping back from this window where he's looking in and seeing chapter six. He's stepping back. He's saying, look in this window. Before that window happens, chapter six happens. The beginning of chapter six. He's saying before that is going to happen, we're going to be sealed in Christ. This word sealed, right there toward the end, middle of, of verse number three. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. That was what would happen in the first century if you had a bond servant or a slave. You would seal that person on their forehead you would, so that they knew, so that everyone knew, this is my bond servant or my slave. Now, you can have a, a bond servant for a variety of reasons. We think American slavery, the great travesty, 
that's not the same, that's not the case in the first century. Most bond servants, many much slavery was because someone was in debt or because they didn't have anything, and they would say, "I'm going to become your indentured servant. I'm going to become your slave or your servant uh, because I don't have any other way to live." And the master would treat them well, and there were plenty of laws for slaves and for servants. So here he says. In the same way, you have been sealed by Christ. He has bought you with his blood. And when Paul talks about being sealed, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 3, what he's talking about is you are being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And if you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, you reflect his name, his character, his identity, his sacrifice. You reflect his love. So here in verse number 3, he's saying, don't touch him until I have sealed, until I have sent the Spirit to fill, to fill my people. They have been sealed by my blood. They have been given my Spirit. They are mine. Then we get to verse number four. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Didn't LB do a great job reading all 12 of those? She didn't miss one. I don't think. I wasn't double checking. This number right here, 144,000, is the Hebrew way of saying completeness or countlessness. If a Hebrew would have heard this, if a first century um, church-going person would have heard this, they would have heard a real big number. They're not saying 144,000. Okay, let's find this and uh, let's make sure it's no more, no less 144,000. Because we see the numbers here and most of the numbers throughout the book of Revelation are symbolic. They symbolize something. He's not saying exactly 12,000 from this tribe and 12,000. He's saying all these folks, a real big number. How many times, Jesus, am I to forgive someone? 70 times seven, all right. Once I get to 490, <laughs> you're on your own. So let's not misinterpret this one either. 144,000, a whole lot of folks. Did John count all these people? Just think about it. If, if it says that there are 144,000, did John count every single one of these? No. It would have been really difficult anyway because notice, how many people did John see? Somebody? How many people did John see? Now you're scared. I know, I don't blame you. He didn't see any because look at the beginning of verse number four. And I what? I heard the number. So when we say, okay, it's got to be 144,000, no more. doesn't matter which religion or sect or whichever one you want to attribute this to. John didn't count these people. He heard the 144. And he heard, here, 12,000 from here, 12,000 from here, 12,000 from here. He hears the number of the sealed, 144,000 each one from the tribe of Israel. Now, as we look at verse number five, you see these, these 12 uh, from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from each one of these tribes. Genealogical lists were huge in Jewish tradition. This list of the 12 tribes of Judah, it's never this same way throughout all the Old Testament. And that would have been huge for the Jewish audience to hear this. Why is John messing with the list of God's chosen people? Here's why. Because John is not consumed with the individual tribes, but John is making a theological statement. Here's the statement that John is making. Never in the Old Testament do we see Judah listed as the first one. But here's what he's saying in Genesis chapter 49. I think this is on the screen. Genesis 49, Moses says this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. Speaking of Christ, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Also, as you look at this list, you see the, uh, the list here, which is um, Dan. Dan was not one of the original tribes of Israel either. Sorry, Dan was one of the original tribes of Israel. In its place, you see here in verse number six, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. And the reason that Dan is not in this list is because he went his own way. Those of the tribe of Dan completely rejected the way of God's teaching. Completely rejected it. So they're taken out of the list. The point is not the list. The point is this is all of God's people. There's a theological statement being made here. The statement is this. The nation of Israel was chosen to bless all other nations and now it is coming to fruition. Genesis chapter, chapter uh, 12, God says this to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, 
Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's messing with Abraham theologically. And here we have this list. He's saying, yeah, through you, Abraham, this Jew, all Jews and Gentiles will be blessed. Again, in Genesis chapter 22, we have this promise reiterated to Abraham. This is after he gets through almost sacrificing Isaac. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God choosing Abraham was not about just the Jews. It was not just about Israel. Israel was meant to bless other nations. They were to be a beacon that welcomes in other nations. This is Christ bringing in all nations to himself. When we get to chapter 21, we're going to see there are 12 gates around heaven. All of the gates have the names of uh, these tribes on them. What What do gates do? They enclose, they encompass And what God is saying is all of the people of the earth are now have been enclosed, encompassed by Israel. That was the purpose of Israel in the Old Testament. Here we see this is true Israel, the church across all of the ages. Throw that up there for me, Nicole, if you don't mind. This is true Israel, the multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual church across all of the ages. That's what he's talking about. This is what he heard. And then if you look at verse number nine, after this, in verse number nine, after this, then I looked. You see the difference? So the beginning of chapter seven, it happens before chapter six. It has to. Then we get to the second half of chapter seven, and he's juxtaposing this. A lot of folks. It's the same group of people, though. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude of people that no one could number. He's saying the same thing in both instances. And if you look there at the Greek, it's actually, he rhymes a lot of these words. And the reason for that, he's saying, I'm making a theological statement. He looked, now he sees it, that no one could, could number from every nation, from all tribes, all people, all languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Notice this list that he has here in verse number nine. This is the only time in all of scripture that we have a list in this way. All other times, including in Revelation, it says all tribes, peoples, languages, and nations. Here, John is making a theological statement. He's saying, Israel as you have known it, the church as you have known it, what you have known as you read this is different when we get into heaven. This is all going toward the true Israel. We are all the people of God. He's saying, from every nation, he says that first for a reason. He's making a statement about heaven. Then if you look at verse number I don't want to skip these verses. And the angels who were standing around the throne and around the angels, the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, let it be blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. How many things are there? Seven things. Interesting, huh? Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God. He's saying God is complete. He's perfect. All of these things belong to our God. Amen. And then verse number 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I think this is a really interesting dialogue here. The elders asked John, who are these people? Verse number 14. John says, Sir, you know, I don't know what the tone of that was, but I imagine it's like when you're talking to your wife and, are you listening to me? Uh, Yeah, 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 I'm listening. I'm not thinking about what's for dinner. I'm not thinking about the time the game comes on. He's, the the elder saying, are you seeing this? John saying, I I got it. You know, you, you, you tell me. And he said to him, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Real quick, what's the, what's the tense there? Is it future tense? These are the ones that are to come out. Is it past tense? These are the ones who did come out. It's present tense. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. John began his letter with, hey, I'm part of you. I'm in this tribulation. He says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. These are the saints of God. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this. 
Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. He's talking there about the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jewish people. But they were written down for our instruction, talking about the church on whom the end of the ages has come. So when, when is the end getting here? Yeah, it has, right? It's not future tense. He's saying the end of the ages has already arrived. The four horsemen, they've been let loose. We see the impact. We see the spirit of Antichrist at work in our culture. That's why he says persevere. That's why those who are in Christ are coming out of the great tribulation. This word great tribulation there in the, in the Greek, we talked about this word a few weeks ago, this thalipsis, tribulation. It means this pressing in. Here he says this great tribulation. Literally, the word is megathalipsis. It's these two tectonic plates that are coming to each other and uh, toward each other. And uh, with my uh, sixth grader, he was learning about this a few weeks ago, is we have these plates, if, if these two uh, tectonic plates touch each other, they're not just like, hey, let's be friends. Let's get. No, they're going to push. One of them is going to win. One of them is going to slip. That's when we get earthquakes, right? We get these fissures. He's saying the same thing is happening here. There's great pressure between these two kingdoms. Somebody's got to win. He's saying in the middle of that, persevere. Verses seven, uh, verse 15 through 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. This is us, friends. By the way, those who are clothed in white because we've been purchased by the blood of the lamb, as we die, we're coming out of this great tribulation that we're in right now. This is us. Therefore, they, we, are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. This is our promise. Verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne, there it is again, will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Who is the one who is going to stand? Who is going to stand? That's the, that's the, the question of angst that John asks at the end of chapter 6. Those who remain faithful when kingdoms clash. Those who remain faithful to God's word rather than capitulating to the culture on matters of sexual identity. On how we spend our time, on how we spend our resources, on the ways that we speak to each other. On our value of life. In the womb. At the end of life. Who can stand? We can stand. And friend, it's evidenced by the fact that we are still standing today. Eugene Peterson said, these people here, and he's talking about these people in verses 15 through 17. He says, these people are not only secure, they are exuberant. This is a curious but wholly biblical phenomenon. The most frightening representations of evil in, in Revelation chapter 6 are set along extravagant praise in Revelation 7. Christians sing. Christians sing. Go to the next slide for me. They sing in the desert, they sing in the night, they sing in prison, they sing in the storm. Any evil, no matter how fearsome, is exposed as weak and pedantic against such songs. Here, the people of God, they stand and they sing, and the enemy hates it. The church has not been taken out by heresy, it's not been taken out by plague, by any sort of government, by a scheme, by an army. Now, in, in some nations, are people being put to death, just like those whose blood is under the altar, whose souls are under the altar? Absolutely. But the church still remains. Why do we stand? Because we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And because he tells us in the book of Revelation to persevere. The enemy grows more and more fierce, not less fierce. Notice the word here is sealed. It means we are secure. We're not isolated. We're not insulated. We're not safe, but we are sealed. We are secure in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? A few things. Seven, in fact, I felt like it was apropos. Maybe you're being chased down by the white horse. Maybe you need to rightly see and love Jesus for who he is. This, friends, is ultimate reality. Seeing Jesus for who he is. Not living according to your own standard. Good theology, great. 
Good doxology, great. The scriptures are not just so we can know more about who God is, but so we can worship. Secondly, maybe you're being chased down by the red horse, and I would encourage you to receive the gospel of peace. Listen, you don't need to prove anything to anybody. You don't have anything to prove to anybody. Listen, you are not the best dad or mom or spouse or teacher or kid or neighbor or Christian to ever live. Can you just breathe that in for a second? Doesn't that feel nice? I don't have to prove that I am. Man. And the red horse of war and of anger and of control would tell you that. The Father loves and accepts you. The Father loves and accepts you. Not because of who you are, because of who he is. Tell that to your regret. Tell that to your anger. Tell that to your manipulation. Tell that to your pain. Tell that to your past. Tell that to your depression. Tell it to your anxiety. Tell it to your sorrow. Tell it to your worry. The Father loves and accepts you. Thirdly, Maybe you're being chased down by this black horse. Fight the black horse with radical hospitality and generosity. Fight this scarcity mentality, this mindset with radical hospitality. We think that we have to hoard our time and our resources and our money and our forgiveness and our goodness to ourselves. Can I encourage you to go meet your neighbor? Like, what, what, if, uh, what if I run out of things to say? Hey, guess what? Rely on the Holy Spirit to give you words. What, what if they ask a question in this time of evangelism? I don't know how to answer. Then rely on the Holy Spirit who's going to prompt your mind. If it's all up to you, we are sunk. And I want to say other words right there. We're sunk. But if we have the power of the Holy Spirit, if we are sealed, there is no scarcity mentality. Yesterday, uh, I took Kingston to uh, Chick-fil-A for breakfast after basketball practice. We go to Chick-fil-A, he got a 12-piece nugget. Uh, that's what he eats for breakfast, like a man. And so he gets the nuggets, we get home, and we're, we're, you know, we're pounding those. And I said, hey, buddy, did you save any for me? Let me grab a couple of those nuggets. He goes, nah. I said, bro, I just bought those nuggets for you, son. No, you bought them for me. They're mine. Kingston was living with this scarcity mindset. Like if I give some of these nuggets to my dad, I'm out of nuggets. What he doesn't know is that I could go back to Chick-fil-A and order a hundred nugget trays and fill up the inside of my truck and the bed of my truck with nugget trays till he would be sick of eating nuggets till he was throwing up nuggets, chicken nuggets, good fried chicken nuggets. There's no scarcity mentality with our father, with our heavenly father. He's given us more than enough. And we want to hoard it to ourselves with the silent treatment and with garage doors and with privacy fences and with getting out of here as fast as we can in a few minutes. Maybe you're being chased down by the pale horse. Friend, let's pray with great expectation that God would heal our physically sick. Maybe you have no idea that we're in a fight for our souls. We're in a fight for our families, for our identity. We're in a fight for the lost. Maybe you think that you don't matter because you're waiting tables or you're stuck in a dead-end job or because of what someone said to you or what happened to you years ago or because of what you're struggling with. Can I encourage you with this? You can trust Christ because your place is in the kingdom. That's your ultimate identity. And then lastly, maybe you need to be reminded that we can stand and sing because we are sealed. The enemy hates you because he hated Christ. And we are in Christ. And Christ says here, I will guide you to the springs of living waters. Wherever you are searching for your meaning of life, Christ has identified with you in life and in death and in resurrection so that he can be your source of life. He says, come to me, all who are heavy, heavy laden, who are burdened, who are sick of things of this world, who are sick of the rat race. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. We can stand and sing because we are sealed, because we are his. Father, I pray that you would give us perseverance, that you would give us greater faith. 
Thank you that we are yours. I pray this morning that as we've heard these words, that we'd be reminded that we are victorious because you are victorious. You've called us into a kingdom of light out of a kingdom of darkness. I pray that we would press hard against the kingdom of darkness. Give us a passion for you, a passion for the lost. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.